Hello, I'm Kate Chauvirich and welcome to the SEDEP podcast. Based in France and operating internationally, we are a global executive education club where minds meet, grow and succeed together. SEDEP is a collaborative learning community of leading international organizations from diverse and non-competitive industries. Rooted in the real world and driven by the real-life challenges of our community, we co-create leadership development programs with innovative, highly relevant and actionable learning. Our mission is to work together to develop leaders and create purpose-driven, agile and sustainable organizations. In an ever-changing and uncertain world, we choose to work together to make the world a better place for us all. This is the fourth episode in a series of six podcasts with Jules Goddard, SEDEP faculty, philosopher, author, and fellow of the Centre for Management and Development at London Business School. Jules has also recently been appointed to the Council of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. In this podcast series, we examine six different philosophical experiments with managerial practice and ultimately address the key question of why should we bring philosophical experimentation into the heart of business and what can we learn? In this episode, we'll explore experimenting with hierarchy and in particular, the notion of why we should bring the virtues of market competition inside the company. So, welcome to the SEDEP podcast, Jules. It's great to have you here once again. Similar to our previous episodes, I believe you'd like to start by sharing a story with us to illustrate the benefits of encouraging competition within an organization. Thank you, Kate. Yes, well, my first job was in New York with Ogilvy, the advertising agency. I joined straight from the Wharton School with an MBA. Effectively, it was my first job. But the thing that most surprised me was that the creative department in Ogilvy was divided into six quite autonomous teams of about 40 people each, made up of copywriters, art directors, graphic designers, producers, and so on. David Ogilvy strongly believed that competition is a highly effective discovery process and that playful rivalry between the six would get to better advertisements. In other words, the extra cost of duplication would be more than covered by the quality of the best campaign to emerge from this competitive market. One of my teachers at Wharton, Erwin Gross, had shown that in many departments of any firm, a mix of three internally competitive teams is optimal. It may look wasteful, but it encourages enterprise. Not too much competition, but not too little either. So what are the wider benefits of encouraging internal competition? What can we learn from this? Well, I think very few people would say that competition in the open marketplace is a bad thing. After all, it's the foundation of the world's wealth. No other system has been invented that comes anywhere near to it. But strangely, we don't believe in friendly rivalry when it comes to the internal culture of the corporation. Here we prefer cooperation to competition. We place our faith in planning rather than experimentation. We give each job holder, so to speak, a monopoly right over their area of expertise. Each person, each team, and each department operates more like a closed shop, and there are penalties for rivalry. We seem to believe that on the inside of the organization, we want a kind of socialism, a small cadre or politburo of powerful people whose word is law, and lots and lots of top-down planning, plenty of targets, and a great show of solidarity and unanimity of opinion. Whilst on the outside, we still firmly believe in the virtues of capitalism. 
Ironically, in China, we are witnessing a kind of reversal of this logic. The nation state is strongly socialist, of course, but some of its leading corporations, such as Haya, the white goods manufacturer, are experimenting with capitalism on the inside. Within Haya, there are only three levels in the company, and the company contains 80,000 people. So there are thousands of autonomous small teams trading with each other to produce refrigerators, washing machines, and so on. There is only a very light superstructure of rules and processes. Effectively, the company operates as a free market. So what other evidence is there this idea has value? Well, one of its greatest virtues is that it is highly resistant to bureaucracy. In the West, bureaucracy is growing in spite of the anti-bureaucratic rhetoric. But inside our organizations, we are becoming more and more like planned economies. Current estimates are that about 17% of GNP, both in the US and in Europe, is wasted on surplus bureaucracy. In the US, this amounts to $3.1 trillion a year. Bureaucracy, of course, is like a ratchet that only goes up. Perhaps our attachment to rules and regulations is a sign of a civilization losing confidence in personal initiative and responsibility. Values of predictability, certainty, and security would seem to be replacing those of courage, curiosity, and experimentation. And in research at CEDEP, François Dupuis has shown that during the pandemic, the people with very little to contribute have been the mid-level managers whose main role is the preservation of bureaucracy. So perhaps the pandemic has highlighted many, many areas in business where there is waste. Okay, so how can we build on this idea? I mean, what practical steps can we take to reduce bureaucracy and inject a dose of healthy competition and experimentation into our organisations? Well, Kate, how about the idea of an internal stock market as just one way of challenging the bureaucratic and hierarchical practices of most corporations? Let's say that €1,000, or its equivalent, is given to each employee to invest in the various parts of the enterprise, the business units, the research projects, the organizational initiatives, and so on. In fact, Lloyds Bank has done something of this sort in Britain. People, employees, could buy and sell shares in these units according to their belief as to whether it was overvalued or undervalued. In this way, the firm would get to know how the organization as a whole, not just the COMEX, placed a monetary value on each of these units. Wouldn't it be interesting to compare these prices with the prices placed on them by the board? I think there will be big differences. But whose estimate of value would we most trust, the crowds or the elites? I think you're probably placing much more faith in the judgment of the organisation as a whole than in small number of senior executives. Am I right? <laughs> yes, indeed, Kate, you are right. Consider the following thought experiment. Imagine an auction of all the assets of the firm, where the only people allowed to bid for these assets were the employees of the firm. For example, I invite any one of you to imagine your own company being put up for sale. But instead of it being sold to another corporation, only you and your fellow employees are allowed to participate in the auction. In other words, you have exclusive rights to bid for whatever parts of the company you want to buy. 
You can bid individually, or more likely, you will divide into diverse teams of complementary talents and put in a joint bid. After all, every company is made up of a collection of physical and intellectual assets, buildings, land, plant, equipment, and inventories, but also patents, brand names, and other intangible assets. Wouldn't it be interesting to know who would bid how much for which assets? Everyone would value different parts of the organization differently, I think. What would then happen, I wonder, if those who bid the highest for any particular asset became responsible for running it as a business? Everybody would be working on that part of the business that excited them the most and with those colleagues they admired the most. And of course, the big question is this. If this thought experiment were real, would we expect the new owners to manage the assets they had just bought better or worse than their forebears? I'm assuming that they would run their business better than before. I think you're right. After all, people would be working with those they had chosen to work with on those parts of the business that they had chosen to buy. It's also true that many of the company's assets would, of course, not have found bidders, and many of its employees would not have found themselves in winning teams. So the auction can serve as a huge sifting mechanism, sifting out both assets and people that are not really adding value. Over the years, telling this imaginary story to many executives in many companies, I found that most of them believe that such an auction would lead to about 20% of the employees owning about 20% of the firm's former assets, with these new firms being valued collectively at about 120% of the firm's former market value. So in a sense, the big question is this. How can we design our organizations in a way that gets to the same beneficial outcome, that is, good people in good self-selecting teams managing good assets, but without the need for an expensive and time-wasting auction? In short, how do we discover where the true value of the firm lies? And how do we discover who should be working with and for whom? Okay, so what can we conclude from this episode? What are the key takeaways? I think the main idea is that we should trust the collective intelligence of the organization as a whole, more than the expert knowledge of any tiny part of it. We need to find an organizational design that does not rely on a great leader for its success. I think it's a poor business if it keeps requiring strong leaders to implement change programs to keep it afloat. I think a well-designed organization or business is one that freely and easily adapts to changing opportunities and threats by drawing upon the collective wisdom of those working for it and not having to rely upon the power or will or judgment of any individual or small clique within it. I like the idea that a good organization is one that doesn't notice a change at the top whether a change of CEO or CFO or CMO. Change should be natural, continuous, and market-inspired. And I think this is more likely to happen if the organization is designed not as a vertical hierarchy of bosses and subordinates, with everyone facing upwards, waiting for instructions, targets, and KPIs, but as a horizontal value chain of suppliers, 
and customers, most of them internal, with everyone facing outwards towards the market and therefore attentive to its needs and wants. Let me close with a short but revealing story. HCL Technologies, which is an Indian IT consultancy, is organized in this way. Everyone has a customer. There are no budgets set from above. Instead, everyone negotiates with their immediate customer how they can best support them over the coming year. Your actions are determined by the needs of your customer, not the commands of your boss. If the main functions of the business, such as HR or IT or finance, are not providing what you need in order to serve your immediate customer, then you have the right to post a public complaint in the full view of everyone else in the firm that can only be taken down when the complaint has been rectified. Here you have the functions serving the business units, as opposed to the normal arrangement in which the business units spend most of their time and effort meeting the bureaucratic requirements of the functions. Very insightful, Jules. Thank you so much. This is the end of today's episode, and we look forward to next time where we will be discussing ways of experimenting with action-based learning. Jules is the co-director of SEDEP's Management and Philosophy Programme, which explores philosophical experimentations in managerial practice and how to use philosophical analysis to push the limits of contemporary management. You can find more information about this programme on the SEDEP website, www.sedep.fr. And if you'd like to read more about the themes raised in this podcast, Jules has recently launched a new book called Business Experimentation, a practical guide for driving innovation and performance in your business, which is available online and in all good bookstores. Thanks again, Jules, and until next time.